Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil. Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Today we have Dr. Alexandra Knish. Dr. Knish is a professor of Islamic studies at the University of Michigan and director of the Islamic studies program at the St. Petersburg State University. His academic interests include Sufism, Quranic studies, the history of Muslim theological, philosophical, and juridical thought, and modern Islamist movements in comparative perspective. His latest books are Islam in Historical Perspective, second edition, and Sufism, a new history of Islamic mysticism. Dr. Kanish serves as sectional editor for Sufism of the Encyclopedia of Islam, third edition, and as executive editor of the E.J. Brill Handbooks of Islamic Mysticism book series. Dr. Knish lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Knish, welcome to Mystics and Skeptics. Thank you for having me. Dr. Knish, so um, this month I am focusing on the mysticism of traditional religions, because um, most traditional religions have a mystical aspect you know, to them in tem- terms of groups, what have you, that um, take a more direct approach to the divine. So um, when it comes to Sufism, Sufism, to my understanding, is the mystical branch of Islam. And um, you are the foremost expert on this uh, lane of uh, study. Um, I just read your bio, but I'm very curious to know uh, what interested you in uh, Sufism and uh, this part of Islam? Um, It was by chance. It was uh, not a deliberate decision on my part to study Sufism. Uh, it was made for me by my uh, advisor, who was a Muslim Tatar uh, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, he suggested the topic. I became fascinated with it. Uh, I, I had known some uh, aspects of Sufism from my study of uh, Arabic literature. And so I decided to pursue the study of Islamic mysticism, or uh, which I prefer to call asceticism-mysticism, because it also contains a substantial ascetic aspect that is a renunciation of the world. What is Sufism exactly? So people understand and uh, where and when did it originate? Because according to my research, I can't keep, ten, I can't really nail it down. Do you educate us on that? Yes, uh, there are several theories of the emergence of Sufism. <clears throat> Some um, focus on uh, what today is, is Iraq. Uh, especially the two uh, Arab Muslim cities, Basra and Kufa, um, which were the seat of Islamic, early Islamic learning. Uh, others focus on Palestine, um, what to, probably what today is Jordan, um, uh, where the first Sufi centers appeared. And still others uh, say that it originated in what today is Syria, uh, greater Syria, which includes Israel, Jordan, uh, southern Turkey, and so forth. So the the most credible uh, version is that it originated in uh, Basra as an ascetic movement between uh, men and women who wanted there to internalize the external aspects of Islam to make it their firm internal conviction. And uh, they practiced uh, renunciation of the world. They renounced the delights of this life. And uh, they focused on the perfection of their souls, on cleansing the souls of mundane aspirations 
selfish aspirations and uh, try to refocus on uh, God, making uh, sometimes portraying him as their uh, uh, beloved. So this uh, idea of love of God, which is free from all self-interest, you love God not for the sake of the benefits uh, uh, that will happen in the afterlife if you attain salvation and go to paradise, nor out of fear of the punishment in the hereafter. You love God simply for his being uh, the creator and uh, you portray him as your uh, close friend and beloved. Uh, so this uh, love uh, mysticism uh, was predominant in, uh, uh, in Basra, and there was a female representatives uh, called Arabia Aladawiya, uh, who died in 801 probably, uh, and who composed very spirited poetry praising her beloved and expressing her uh, desire to become one with him. Does Prophet Muhammad, do Sufis, Sufis incorporate Prophet Muhammad's hadith, you know, the teachings? And Yes, definitely. Uh, every Muslim is supposed to follow in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad, that is to imitate his actions and words and his even his gestures, even how to part the beard and uh, how to go to the restroom and so forth. And the, the, the biography of the Prophet Muhammad contains some mystical elements. For instance, he withdrew from his community uh, into seclusion on a mountain uh, outside Mecca, where he engaged in meditation, mystical meditation, and uh, contemplation of his former life and uh, the meaning of his life. And this uh, uh, seclusion, this retreats, uh, were followed by the, uh, by the Sufis. They said, you see, the prophet was a mystic. He withdrew from society in order to receive divine outpourings outpourings of divine knowledge and grace in isolation from society. So we are not uh, introducing any innovation in religion. Besides the prophet also traveled, he uh, went on a, uh, uh, on a great journey to meet his Lord, uh, traveling through uh, seven heavens into the presence of God and contemplate the God. It's a very mystical experience. It uh, reminds us of the throne vision of God in, um, in other Abrahamic religions. So uh, if you follow in the footsteps of Muhammad, you, you may try to capture, recapture the rapture, so to say, by uh, trying to uh, work yourself into a state where you have this spiritual journey, uh, repeating what Muhammad did during his lifetime. Finally, the prophet also led a very frugal life. He mended uh, his own clothing. He ate uh, frugally and simply, and he uh, also uh, had uh, showed ascetic, uh, world-renouncing tendencies. So the Sufis would say, you see, the prophet had already uh, blazed the path for us. Our path, Sufi path, is the path of the Prophet. We follow in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad and we love him uh, as we love God. In terms of Sufi beliefs, right? You touched upon it in the beginning. Are there any main tenets in Sufism? In Sufism? 
Uh, the most distinctive feature, if you uh, ask me to uh, single out one, uh, would be the idea of a path to God. A, as in other mystical religion, the uh, travel to God, the journey to God is depicted as a path uh, which has stations and states. So this probably is the most characteristic feature of Sufism. You travel through the path, uh, of course, blazed by the prophet, as I say, but um, you go from one station to another. The first station is usually renouncing the world, uh, then uh, repenting of your sins, of your, uh, of your previous sins, and uh, uh, starting with uh, square one, so to say. Uh, then you move on to scrupulousness in your food and dress, you're not supposed to wear um, flashy um, uh, silk clothing, uh, comfortable clothing, but you are supposed to wear uh, a rough woolen clothes uh, that's, that gave the name to, to Sufism. Suf uh, in Arabic means uh, wool. So Sufis are wool men or wool persons, those who wear wool rough on, the, on your body, uh, uncomfortable and stinky, to be frank, uh, when, especially when you are, uh, are wet um, uh, after the rain. So, um, so the, the, the Suf, Sufism is a, a travel, is a journey uh, from one station to another. But also on your journey, you experience spiritual states. Uh, so sta sta stations are stable. Uh, you earn it and then you move to another. So you fulfill the requirements of the state of renunciation by renouncing good things of life. You, for instance, you don't drink cold water, which is uh, in hot climes is a deprivation. You only drink stale, uh, uh, tepid water. Um, so uh, it's a self-imposed structure uh, in order not to please your uh, soul, nafs, uh, the animal soul that craves cold water, for instance. You do not eat uh, the food that you uh, used to like in your uh, secular or uh, profane life. For instance, you craved uh, uh, chicken. So you deprive yourself of chicken uh, meat uh, for the rest of your life. It's your uh, uh, vow uh, to, to God. So you, um, uh, you also uh, stop uh, actively earning livelihood. You stop enriching yourself and so on. So you fulfilled the requirements of the renunciation of the world, then you move to the station, more, a more advanced station of scrupulousness in food. In, in, then you begin be, become very uh, discernful, uh, very concerned about the provenance of food. If it comes from the table of the Sultan, it's haram, it's uh, prohibited because it is uh, a result of the exactions of the powers of be their um, uh, oppression of human, uh, of, of the subjects. So you abstain from any gifts from rich people, from influential people, and you'd also try to help the needy uh, to the best of your ability. So you, you become like, a, a, for instance, a, 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 a wood gatherer um, who just uh, earns one's life by moving one uh, natural uh, item to, uh, to a certain place 
and burning uh, or water carrier, the same natural substance. You uh, just carry it from the spring to, to the city and that's how you earn your living. So uh, this scrupulousness, uh, then when you fulfill the requirements of the scrupulousness, you move on to the next stage, which probably can be um, satisfaction with your uh, with a portion that God apportioned to you, allotted to you in your life. So no matter how adverse your external condition, you continue to praise God and uh, remain uh, satisfied with your uh, with your fate. And uh, so now these are the state, stations of the mystical path, but you also experience special states. For instance, love of God or fear of God. It can be so intense that you can collapse and uh, start uh, weeping uh, without any external um, influence. So you, you experience it all in your soul. Uh, so uh, this uh, states usually comes in pairs, fear and hope. Uh, you are afraid of your about your uh, fate in the hereafter, chauf um, um, in Arabic, and at the same time, uh, after this state ends, you uh, you experience hope that you are one of those uh, destined to salvation. These in their uh, in general, I know they're different orders. They're men and women, and um, are they able to marry and have families? And if that's the case, how do they support their children and raise a themselves to be productive members of society. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a very good and di difficult question um, because um, in, as you know, in Christian monasticism, you're not supposed to marry. Um, so, uh, and uh, the Quran discouraging uh, uh, celibacy, that's obvious. So Sufis usually married, had uh, children, uh, but they only resorted to sex to procreate, to give birth uh, to the children, and they then they abstained from sex. There were even groups of Sufis who um, realized that if uh, a man and a woman live together uh, and do not consummate their marriage because of their belief uh, in uh, that their sole uh, beloved is God, uh, they. Uh, uh, they just entered into this partnership in order not to draw upon themselves the, uh, uh, the criticism of the society. But in fact, they lived, uh, uh, they, they, they never consummated their marriage uh, in, while living together. Uh, from the outside, they were man and woman, uh, man and wife, but uh, they were actually the their only bride and bridegroom was the was God. So, and um, however, the majority of Sufis did have children, uh, were married, and um, uh, their wives often shared their beliefs. Those uh, who uh, married tried to support their families by engaging in these professions that I mentioned or by uh, living, uh, as you also mentioned, by donations, uh, through donations. Uh, the faqir in Arabic indeed, and the plural is fuqara, the, uh, the poor, it's uh, a badge of honor for Sufis. They, uh, they uh, use this term 
for themselves uh, to describe their, not just their material poverty, but poverty in God, because they're poor, they're always poor. They never have enough of God's presence in their life. So uh, the Persian word for this, which is very well known in the West is dervish. It also means a beggar. Um, so uh, however, uh, Sufis, uh, Sufism is very diverse. Uh, internally. There were Sufis who lived like monks in, uh, in cloisters, in uh, convents. Uh, they were called Hanaka, uh, they were called Zawiya, they were called Ribat in different parts of the Muslim world. Different terms were used. Uh, but this was collective kind of uh, lifestyle. Uh, and they usually had in, uh, pious endowments that supported their institutions. And then there were hippies and beatniks among Sufis who rejected this institutionalized Sufi life, uh, regulated Sufi life, and who behaved outrageously. Uh, they uh, pierced their, uh, uh, their ears, their uh, um, lips, uh, like our hippies uh, and punks do today. And uh, they also, uh, engaged in sometimes uh, outrageous uh, public behavior, publicly drinking wine or uh, consuming hashish uh, narcotics. Uh, so they, uh, they traveled usually alone with a staff, with a uh, begging bowl, uh, scantily, uh, poorly dressed in rags. Uh, and uh, traveling from one door to another. Darwish, they say, it's beg it goes back to that practice of begging. Uh, so you see then there were institutionalized respectable Sufis who lived in monasteries, who usually were supported by the powers that be, by the sultans, their wives, their pious wives, because uh, the sultans and their wives wanted the uh, Sufis to pray for them and for their children. And then there were those uh, anti-social, asocial groups uh, that gave sometimes Sufism a bad name uh, because they engage in outrageous uh, actions and sometimes even uh, resorted to, um, to threatening households that refused to give them uh, food uh, with uh, punishment, um, uh, supernatural punishment uh, like um, invoking uh, powers that would attack that household. It was sort of blackmail if you, if you wish. And this is reported in the sources. So um, Sufism was internally very diverse. Different groups existed, more rule book people coexisted with more out, uh, anti-social elements. Uh, but they both believed in the basic ideas of Sufism, that the Sufism is a path to God, that God is uh, one's beloved, that uh, this world is mostly evil and you should uh, keep away from it. That's why they lived in the monasteries to separate themselves from the uh, rest of, uh, of, of, of society. Sufism, where is it largely found today? In what parts of the world? And 
that's question number one. And question two, on top of that, is you know I've heard there's Western Sufism now, where you find them here in the West, Europe, you know, and these are people who are not even Muslim per se. Or can you uh, answer those two questions? Yes, uh, geographically, Sufism can be found across the Muslim world, except for a few countries that uh, considers it to be a heretical innovation. It's an Arabic bidah and which prohibits it uh, officially. This is Saudi Arabia, for instance, right. and uh, some countries of the Gulf, uh, which, uh, uh, which persecutes Sufis or uh, at least uh, condemns them as heretic. But at the same time, there are Sufi groups that exist clandestinely, even in Mecca and Medina, uh, Jeddah and Riyadh. They gather together, they don't advertise themselves, but they gather together, um, and I know this for sure from my own students from Saudi Arabia, and they pursue their spiritual path um, undetected by the authorities, or authorities look the other way. Today, uh, the Saudi government is more concerned with radical Islamists uh, who are indeed a, a danger, a, a, a clear and present danger to the existence of their state. Sufis, as long as they engage in their private uh, sessions, in their recollection of God's name uh, called dhikr, uh, they are seen as uh, harmless, the lesser of evil uh, and of little concern. But otherwise, uh, Sufis can be found in Somalia and in China. Um, they are especially numerous in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, they are also present in Iran, which is a Shia country, but they are looked down upon because they are seen as a competitors to the Shia imams um, uh, who are supposed to have the only uh, uh, privileged knowledge to the divine mysteries because Sufis claim similar uh, uh, access or similar knowledge. Uh, they are looked down upon with suspicion um, and uh, uh, in Iran, Sufism is separated into philosophical Sufism, which is called Irfan and which is seen as a very uh, rich uh, intellectual tradition and not only tolerated, but taught in the madrasas and the religious colleges. And uh, the uh, uh, everyday uh, Sufism, uh, uh, which is seen as a uh, collection of charlatans uh, beggars, parasites, and uh, they are sometimes persecuted by the state. In fact, they're, they're, their uh, centers are closed and they're persecuted. In India, um, uh, among Muslims and in Pakistan, Sufis are not only tolerated, it's the major form of the existence of Islam. Uh, there are numerous uh, Sufi shrines which are part of the Ministry of the Waqf's Ministry of Pious Donations, um, because the as any modern state, Pakistan and India wants to control what's going on at the Sufi gatherings. Um, this, this this contemporary state is very intrusive, but it tolerates. And even Modi, the uh, Prime Minister of India, uh, he had a conference uh, in, in in which he praised Sufism as a tolerant. Uh, a version of Islam that should be encouraged among uh, the, his Muslim subjects. Uh, this, of course, can be a kiss of death uh, because the, uh, then the, the masses, Muslim masses, will see it 
as a, a stooge of the government. And this happens very often across the Muslim world. So Sufism, uh, Sufis are also very active in Central Asia, in uh, Eastern China, in what is called Xinjiang or Tur uh, East Turkestan. Um, and uh, Sufis can be found in the former Soviet Union, in the Caucasus, uh, in the Volga region, in the central areas of Russia, um, and also in the West. With regard to the West, uh, Western Sufism is a special uh, development. Um, it uh, started in the United States and North uh, America in general, probably in the uh, late 19th and early uh, 20th century. Um, and um, it gradually spread and adjusted to the environment of North America uh, become, to become culturally acceptable. Um, so uh, the first uh, Western uh, order, um, the Sufi order of the West was basically a, a branch of theosophy, theosophical thinking associated with uh, Georgi uh, Gurdjieff and uh, Madame Blavatsky to some extent, who resided in New York, uh, as you may know. And uh, theosophy and Sufism uh, were closely intertwined. Um, and uh, the major characteristic of Western Sufism was syncretism. For instance, Hinduism and Islam uh, co uh, combined uh, together. Um, uh, int intricately, um, uh, also elements of Buddhism introduced, Sufi dances also were practiced, but they were also associated with the uh, Native American dances. For instance, in Indiana, Bloomington, they were uh, sun dances, which had some Sufi formulas, but also elements of uh, uh, Native American uh, Indian dances and so forth. So syncretism is one of the most uh, salient characteristics uh, of Western Sufism. And yes, uh, uh, according to the so-called perennialist interpretation of Sufism, you don't have to be a Muslim to, uh, be, to, to practice Sufism to participate in the recollection of God's names. There are 99 most beautiful names and the recollection uh, is conducted collectively by uh, Sufi groups, for instance, in the Bay Area, in California, here in Michigan, uh, in Fenton. Um, they, they also practice Dikr. We have a Sufi Sheikh named Sheikh Hisham Qabbani who has a large following across the United States. Uh, there are also uh, uh, African-American Sufi groups, uh, which are mixed with the immigrants uh, who come from, uh, from Senegal, from Nigeria, the Tijaniya and so forth. So there are many Sufi institutions and groups across the United States. They practice um, uh, syncretic versions of Sufism and more traditional version. So the recent immigrants tend to adhere to more traditional versions, which are similar to the uh, versions of Sufism from their country, uh, from their countries, from their homelands. And then there are the intellectual, uh, spiritual uh, Western Sufism that uh, attracts uh, creative intelligentsia, creative uh, 
uh, men and women of Western society, sometimes engineers, uh, uh, medical workers, uh, uh, doctors, and so forth. So it's a, also a diverse phenomenon um, in which, uh, as I say, in some groups, uh, the conversion to Islam is not a requirement. Interesting. Um, so in terms of uh, scripture per se, I mean, the Western Sufism groups, Sufist groups, do they um, rely on the Quran and the Hadith, even though they don't convert, or do they have their own it's a good question. So uh, uh, as a follow up to my previous answer, uh, the uh, Sufism actually became uh, prominent in the United States thanks to the efforts of Hadrat uh, uh, Inayat Khan um, and his children, uh, Wilayat Khan and others. Um, uh, so uh, that form of Sufism was associated with music. Music uh, was an attractive way to recruit new followers in the West. So dance and music became very attractive to uh, Western intellectuals and uh, artists uh, who uh, practiced uh, this Sufi light, Sufism light, I can say that uh, while pursuing their careers. So your previous question was, uh, sorry, I, I, I- In terms of their scripture text, what do they scripture. rely on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I would say, to, to put it uh, very briefly, it's a large subject. Sufis, uh, as all Muslims, consider the Quran to be the ultimate authority, scriptural authority, but they interpret it very differently. Uh, in fact, practically every Islamic school of thought has its own interpretation of the Quran. So their legal scholars interpret the Quran uh, in order to find in it uh, references to the legal rulings, norms that they would apply in real life. Uh, theologians are interested in the relations between God and God's creation, the world. How many attributes, what are these attributes eternal or not co-eternal with God, or they are created and so forth. For instance, the Quran, is it created? It's a word of God, one of the attributes. Is it created or uncreated? And then there are Sufis and Shis. Shis look uh, in the scripture in the Quran for references to the special role of the members of the Prophet's house, Ahlul Bayt in Arabic, the uh, people of the pro Prophet's household. They, because uh, they want to prove that the Quran contains allusions to the special role of the relatives of the Prophet, namely to his uh, son-in-law and cousin Ali ibn Abi Talib and his descendants, the, the Shi'i Imams. There are 12 of them, according to one Sufi tradition, uh, Shi'i tradition, there are seven, according to another, uh, there are four, according to another one, uh, Zaydis and so forth. But uh, the long and short of it, that Shi'is read the Quran uh, in, in order to find hints at the special role of the uh, Sufis are looking for the, what they call the, the uh, internal, meaning of the Quran. Uh, they believe that the Quran has a secret meaning that can be extracted through correct interpretation. In order to extract these hidden meanings, you have to purify yourself. It won't be, this secret meaning will never be disclosed to a, a corrupt soul, to the um, soul that is uh, worldly preoccupied with mundane pursuits and concerns. 
Therefore, um, one has to purify one's soul and then one begin, will begin to experience glimpses of truth. Uh, the external text uh, moves away, revealing the true meaning of the Quran. For instance, the uh, Kaaba, uh, the uh, major sanctuary of Islam located in Mecca, is no longer a physical house. It's your heart. Uh, which uh, in which God resides. So you have to, the, the, command, the Quranic command to cleanse the Kaaba before the pilgrimage uh, means that you have to cleanse your heart in order to allow your beloved guests to settle there. So it's esoteric interpretation. Uh, we can call it allegorical, symbolic interpretation. But uh, uh, Sufis are preoccupied with this hidden meaning, which they consider to be the kernel as opposed to the husks of the Quranic text. So, so, no, so the same with the Hadith. The, the Hadith, they interpret also uh, to find out the hidden meaning, the spiritual meaning. Um, and then they, of course, have their own manuals, how to become a Sufi, how uh, to follow in the footsteps of the role models of Sufism, early Sufism, like Junaid, uh, um, like um, uh, Abu Sayyid al-Kharraz and others, uh, other early Sufis who are considered to be the models to be followed. So, but uh, the scriptural basis are the same for all Muslims, including uh, Sufis. The role of the sheikh, right? Could you uh, expand on the, that a bit in Sufism? Why is the sheikh so important? And it seems like he's usually an intermediary. I don't know if there's a female sheikha, but uh, you know, an intermediary, middle person to God, it seems like. But please correct me if you can explain that. Yes, sheikh is the guide to God. Yeah. Sheikh in Arabic means uh, el uh, the elder. Uh, in Persian, it's uh, the same word, um, uh, meaning elder is peer, P-I-R. Um, in Indian context, sometimes called guru. Uh, even Sufis use the same uh, term as the Hindus do. Uh, so there's also another word, murshid, the guide, the one who leads on the straight path, literally. So Sheikh is essential according to the great, great majority of Muslims. Of, of Sufis, I'm sorry. Sufis believe that without Sheikh, uh, your Sheikh is Iblis, the devil, the fallen angel. Um, uh, and he will guide you, of course, to a wrong place uh, uh, by enticing you into doing uh, things that you're not supposed to do, by whispering in your ear. So Sheikh protects you from the whisperings of the uh, shaitan. Uh, sheikhs are Sheikh, the sheikh uh, immediately after meeting you, he's clair, clairvoyant, he can read your thoughts and understand your aspiration, your real aspiration. And he can either accept you as a disciple, the disciple is called murid, M-U-R-I-D, murid, which means aspirant, someone who aspires to achieve uh, his goal that is the end of the Sufi path. So the sheikh is indeed, as you said, intermediary, uh, between God and uh, ordinary humans. And he is possessed of this knowledge of scripture that others do not have because he, he has already, he or she has already cleansed his or her soul and made it receptive to outpourings of divine knowledge and grace. 
And um, having uh, gone through the, the, the path, he now becomes a guide on the same path. So he's essential according to the great majority of Sufis, but already in the Middle Ages, some say, no, you can learn Sufism from books. Uh, in North Africa, there was a polemic. They say, we now have such a rich uh, literature on Sufism. There are so many manuals. Oh, why do you need Sheikh? Uh, you can guide yourself by uh, using the examples of the people whose lives are described in these manuals, the exemplary lives. So this polemics continues, but the majority, the overwhelming majority of uh, uh, Sufis believe that uh, the, the, the role of the sheikh is essential for achieving success because it prevents uh, the murid, the, stu the student, the disciple from digressing, from uh, falling uh, for the whisperings of the uh, Satan, uh, Iblis or, or Ash-Shaitan. Um, and it also uh, uh, is a shorter way um, it, uh, because the Sheikh knows your, your, you have to uh, use uh, the Sheikh as a confidant. You, you confide in the Sheikh and the Sheikh tells you, uh, uh, monitors your progress, uh, your intellectual state, and guides you uh, along the path. So the sheikh is absolutely essential, but the critics of Sufism say that uh, it leads to deification, to idolizations <laughs> of the Sufis, uh, or by the Sufis of their sheikhs, uh, that they become super, uh, superhuman. Uh, and uh, uh, whereas the Quran often says that uh, the, the greatest among you is the greatest in piety, um, and we're all equal before God. No one possesses special knowledge, but Quran also contains references to the friends of God or people who are under God's protection. They're called awliya. So Sufis say they are, these people mentioned in the Quran twice, but they are us. We are the close friends of God, and we have a special status on, in the eyes of God, and God uh, reveals to us his secret, which we then convey to our followers, the Murids. Therefore, no, we are indispensable. This is kind of self-serving uh, attitude, as you realize, but uh, the uh, jurists say the same. They, they say, uh, follow our norms as we interpret the Quran and the Hadith, and you will achieve salvation. With, without us, you will be lost. So the Sufi Shaykh says the same to their followers. And the followers believe in them, and indeed they become like advisors uh, in crisis, especially. Um, and even in very modern societies, people feel disoriented and they need an anchor and therefore they find such anchors in the personalities of Sufi sheikhs, which usually indeed have uh, special qualities like ability to read the mind of the murids, um, ability to understand their um, hidden aspirations, uh, reveal them and then suppress them. If for instance, in medieval Sufism, if, uh, uh, a Sufi sheikh felt that his murid uh, was uh, puffed with pride, with mundane pride because of his nobility. Maybe he's a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, or maybe he's a member of a noble family. He would send him to clean, clean the public latrines in the marketplace to 
yeah, to, to destroy his, uh, his ego, to subdue his ego. So um, that's why Sufis, uh, Sufi sheikhs are considered to be indispensable because they closely monitor the progress of their students, of their disciples, and uh, guide them um, and protect them against the dangers of uh, falling into certain states of mind that are counterproductive to the progress. Um, can women be sheikhs or, or sheikhs yes. just typically men? They can. Okay. In the United States and North America, everything is possible. There are, <laughs> oh, things okay. that, there are things that you will never find in, in the Muslim world. Yes, of course, in the Muslim world, Sufi uh, female sheikha is the uh, sheikha is the female form of the word sheikh are quite numerous and they lead usually all female congregations. Interesting. But in the United States, it's different because it's uh, a society that where gender roles uh, have already been uh, erased or er eroded to a considerable part. So yes, there are Sufi, uh, female Sufi masters, but if you read even medieval Sufi works, you find praise of female Sufis. For instance, the great Sufi from Islamic Spain um, uh, called Ibn al-Arabi, he says that he studied with several women and he provides like glowing reports about their spiritual conditions. Shams, mother of the poor, uh, he says, she lived in Marchena, uh, which is in today's Spain, where I visited her often. Among people of our kind, I have never met one like her with respect to the control she had over her soul. So she was completely uh, in self-control. So she subdued, tamed her soul. In her spiritual activities and communication, she was among the greatest. She had a strong and pure heart, a noble spiritual power and fine determination. She concealed her spiritual state, although she would often reveal something of it to me in secret because she knew of my own attainment, that is spiritual level, mm -hmm. um, which gladdened me. She was endowed with many graces. She had considerable experience uh, of her intuition and found her uh, to be a master in this, and I found her to be a master in this sphere. Her spiritual state was characterized chiefly by her fear of God and his good pleasure in her. The combination of the two, that is fear and, good, and, and uh, satisfaction with God, uh, is, uh, is very rare uh, in, in, among us. And he goes on and on. Uh, he tells several stories about her miracles, the miracles she performed. Oh, look, this was written in Islamic Spain in the early, in the late uh, 12th century. So Sufi, Sufi, female Sufis were very important. And uh, the professor, Harvard professor of Islamic studies, Leila Ahmed emphasized that in Sufism, women played a much greater role than in a mainstream Islam, especially uh, in terms of guidance. Uh, as you can see from Ibn Arabi's account, she can be a guide at Shams, that is, means sun, uh, glowing sun. Uh, um, can be the mother of the poor, can be a, a, a spiritual director for a young man. Um, and he gives another name of another woman, Nuna Fatima bint Ibn al-Muthanna, 
uh, who lived in Seville. Uh, and he also tells a lot of stories uh, how she used the prayer, Fatiha, the opening uh, prayer, uh, surah of the Quran, which is short, considered to be mother of the book, considered to be the, uh, the, the uh, summary of the Islamic, uh, of the Quranic message. She used this surah as her servant, uh, for instance, to bring back a wayward husband who wanted to marry another woman, uh, traveled to uh, Harris in Islamic Spain, a city, uh, but was stopped by, by the surah, which was sent by, uh, by Nuna Fatima, uh, and fetched back to, to his wife who complained about uh, her plight to, the, uh, to, to Nuna or Fatima, the, the person with the spiritual powers. So you can see very intimate relations between this woman and uh, the first surah of the Quran, which is considered to be the summary of the entire Quranic message. And she can use it to um, make miracles. To, to. Uh, so this is the, the 12th century Spain, uh, and uh, women are playing an important part. Arabia al-Adawiya, I mentioned, her poetry continues to fascinate people. She had many imitators among Muslim poetess in the Middle Ages, in the Mamluk period. Uh, for instance, Al-Bauniya, um, uh, uh, a famous poet, she imitated uh, uh, Rabia al-Adawiya in her poetry. And uh, Rabia's poetry is indeed very sophisticated and indeed uh, completely uh, uh, sincere. Uh, it's written in Arabic. But uh, uh, I can continue uh, about the role of female uh, masters. But Leila Ahmed, uh, as I say, that sees in Sufism uh, a more accommodating and more favorable environment for women to thrive. Uh, I would also like to point out that during the Mamluk period, um, that is uh, 13th, uh, uh, 17th centuries, um, uh, female uh, members of the uh, royal households, of the Mamluk households, of the households of military commanders were uh, donors to the Sufi shrines. Uh, they uh, participated in Sufi rituals, but they were actually patrons um, using the wealth that inherited from their husband or shared with their husband to support Sufi activities. We find similar events in Yemen uh, where there are Sufi schools even named after female donors, like we do in our campuses, we name after the buildings after donors, but the same happened in the Middle Ages. So women were closely, were very interested in Sufi activities, sponsored them, participated in them, and um, were encouraged their uh, children also to, to take part. So let's, um, that's a good segue actually, because you mentioned, you know, uh, a little earlier, you know, the sheikhs having clairvoyant abilities, the ability to read people's minds, you know, you touched upon, you know, some of these examples of uh, these female Sufis, you know, using wells and performing miracles and, you know, people in general, stereotypically, you know, no Sufis uh, rituals, you know, breathing, meditation, the dervishes dancing, you know, whirling, um, just, you know, all in the goal of connecting with the divine. But I want to explore a little bit on the whole um, or supernatural aspects of Sufism. 
uh, cosmology even, on the concept of spiritual beings. And in particular, when it comes to Islam, you know, it's something even referenced in the Quran, of uh, the concept of jinn, which are uh, demons per se. Could you describe what are jinn? Or do Sufis channel jinn? And, um, and also Iblis, you know, the whole story behind that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's a wonderful question and difficult <laughs> one because the jinn, the status of jinn is not very clear, even in theological terms. Um, but uh, let's start with the Quranic universe, what Quranic universe, the creation of God contains. It contains uh, several beings, a, a group of beings. First, uh, angels, uh, malaika, then we have uh, Satan, um, Iblis or Shaitan, and um, the minor demons called uh, Shayateen, um, then we have jinn as a separate category, but uh, they are sometimes mixed up with the previous category, the devils and the Satan. Then we have uh, humankind, animals, and plants. So the jinn, so the, the, the root of the word is, uh, has something to do with hiding or concealment. So they're invisible. And that, uh, what, the same applies to the angels, to the satans and to the jinn. So what unites them is their invisibility for human beings. Uh, so uh, Satan was, according to one Quranic statement, was uh, a genie. According to another, he was a fallen angel. So the, the, the status of Satan is not clearly determined. But the jinn already existed before Islam. Uh, they uh, inhabited Arab uh, Bedouin camps. Uh, they, for instance, they could do good things and bad things. And this is what uh, uh, makes them akin to human beings. They can be uh, actors for good and actors for evil. They can be believers and unbelievers. So uh, therefore, in the Quran, they, uh, the human, being, human beings and jinn are sometimes treated as uh, part of the same genus, as part of the same group. They are fellows to human beings. The only uh, distinctive feature is that they are invisible, um, uh, which their name indicates. So, uh, and uh, uh, the there is even a, uh, the, the, the jinn are important for the Quranic universe because uh, Surah 72, that is chapter 72, is called jinn. So it, it's part of the Quranic universe. And Sufis, uh, uh, yeah, and the, the jinn also were uh, the followers of the Prophet, by the way. For instance, uh, there were, uh, uh, when the Prophet uh, lectured, or when the Prophet uh, preached, to the first Muslims, according to uh, one tradition, uh, among the listeners were invisibly present were the jinn. And at the end of the, uh, of the sermon, they converted to Islam. So uh, alongside with the rest of the human audience, again, as I say, there is a kinship between the humans and the jinn in that particular hadith story about the prophet. Um, and uh, the Sufis uh, have complex relations with the jinn. 
Some believe that they can uh, be messengers of the Satan and therefore they should be avoided. Uh, when uh, one jinn wanted to uh, join a Sufi congregation, uh, the Sufi master through his spiritual uh, insight, Basira in Arabic, recognized him and said, no, go away. And he used the formula uh, that um, uh, the prophet used to uh, ward off the jinn. Um, it's in the, tra the traditions of the prophet. But others uh, are more sanguine, I would say. They report a conversation, for instance, the uh, Sufi from Iraq, from the, who died in the middle of the ninth century. He's, he says uh, that he had a conversation with a jinni who claimed to have met Jesus and Muhammad and was performing uh, his prayer in a 900 year old uh, but still fresh garment. So, so that's uh, a Sufi master says this in his commentary on the Quran, in his commentary on the Surah 17, on this uh, chapter 17. Uh, and he seems to be treating this uh, Sufi master, Tustari, says that the jinni and human beings are alike. Uh, however, he says that some of them can be, as I mentioned, the messengers of the Satan and they should be avoided. Um, so um, some Sufis uh, claim to be able to, um, to control the jinn and uh, uh, the jinn uh, did their will. They fulfilled their uh, desires. Um, what is uh, what also is important that uh, the that jinn are also in pre-Islamic Arabia and that continued after the advent of Islam that uh, jinns are associated with inspiration, poetic inspiration. The prophet Muhammad was accused of being possessed by the jinn, majnun, uh, that is possessed by the jinn uh, who dictated to him the Quran. That, that's what the opponents of the, of the prophet and his message tell him and by the, in the Quran. The Quran itself quotes the words of the polemicists, the critics of the prophet. Your, your uh, ideas your, are dictated not by God, but, but, but by a jinni who is an evil jinn who wants you to, uh, to take control of all us who bring us under your control. Um, but overall, uh, Sufists were uh, like um, ambiguous about, uh, about uh, jinnis uh, and uh, because the status of Satan uh, as, a, as a potential, as a jinni uh, uh, indicated that they can be uh, sources of evil whisperings and um, they can take control over human beings. Human beings are vulnerable because of their nafs, which is their uh, appetitive uh, carnal soul. Human beings have uh, the spiritual, spiritual aspect, ruhaniya it's called, or sir, uh, literally the mystery. It's part of the, your heart that turn, it's turned to God. And then the animal soul, that, the, the collection of appetites and passions, uh, and that part is susceptible to the whisperings of the devil or that, that can appear in the form of the jinn. 
so uh, so that's that's the ambiguity is quite painful sometimes is perceptible in the discussion of the jinn uh, in Sufi literature, but generally they treat them as uh, as fellow believers or unbelievers. It's interesting, you know, you know, most Westerners um, will attribute jinn to like the genie in the Disney movie Aladdin, right? It's not really that that simple and they're not really subservient to humans right, per se, right? Like you said, um, they just, they exist in a different plane from my understanding, unseen, like you said. Yeah, and, but the um, evil vizier, he's probably, uh, who controls the genie, remember? Oh, that. so that's right, that's yeah, right. Uh, he, uh, he simply knows the formulas that can uh, subdue the jinn. The <laughs> and I'm he, not even he, sure that's Muslim Islamic or Muslim approved. You know, is that haram? Or, you know, but the, you know? yeah, but the uh, evil vizier is a fixture in the medieval <laughs> Islamic uh, storytelling. Yeah, it always tries to control the court and, um, of course, to control the ruler uh, using all kinds of charms. Yeah. Uh, and occult scientists, hidden sciences, ilm al in Arabic. I mean, so across it, all Abrahamic religions, right? They attribute these spiritual beings, these demons, what have you, for mental illness and for, you know, even physical illness or what. Um, but also inspiration, poetic inspiration. <laughs> So it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> it is a double-edged sword. Um, I, I'd like to just stay in my human form in my human material world and just be, I don't want to mess across that line. But you, you mentioned, you know, so jinn can be manifested allegedly in human form. Can they manifest in any other way, in like animal form or anything like that? that yes, you know they of? can take any form they want. Yes, definitely. Uh, Pre-Islamic uh, pantheon uh, is very rich in female and male jinns. Um, you probably heard of the adjective ghoulish. This is the female, uh, terrifying female jinni, uh, 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 who lives in the desert and who sings like siren, uh, attracting people and leading them astray away from their trodden paths and eventually to perdition, they die in the desert. So that was a female jinni, uh, frequently mentioned in pre-Islamic poetry of the Bedouins. Uh, the prophet had uh, com complex relations with the jinni, uh, with jinn, um, basically uh, the Quran mentions that the jinn can overhear the deliberations of the uh, heavenly council. In the Quran says that. And then the, uh, the uh, angels spelled them with stones, uh, which we see that's, that's the shooting stars, the meteorites. Uh, uh, but then they convey uh, the, the secret knowledge, usually about the future, to, human, to elect human beings. Uh, and they enter into relations with the people who uh, claim to have access to the deliberation of the Holy Council, but the intermediaries are the jinn. Uh, they listen, uh, the jinn sometimes mishear what they, the, the deliberation, and so they misinform the, uh, their human uh, counterparts who misinform their audiences. That's why the Islam basically uh, uh, condemned this tradition. After the divine revelation, there was no need for jinnis any longer. The jinn became unnecessary because now the, there was the only legitimate uh, 
medi mediator between the world of the unseen, the, the, it was the prophet. And I mean, all so the other, yeah, all other mediators were unnecessary, <laughs> redundant. So even today, for example, you know, you, we have psychics, you know, fortune tellers, you know, so it's, it's quite possible, right, that if, you know, they're channeling something, they're hearing something, it could be a jinn, right? That's really yes. miscommunicating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, is that, would you, that, was that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, you mentioned just uh, a new concept to me. I mean, it's not new um, for, in Islam. You know, I know it's in ancient Judaism, rabbinic literature, it's referenced, the divine council. You said holy council. Is that referenced in the Quran? What does yes, Al-Mala Al-Ala, it's called. Yes, it's referenced in the Quran. Uh, Al-Mala Al-Ala, the, okay. upper, upper, uh, uh, the upper assembly, literally. Really? Yeah. Yes, yes. It's mentioned in the Quran. It's part of the Islamic tradition. It's usually God and the angel talking, uh, discussing things, and uh, the jinn uh, sneaking and trying to overhear their deliberations and convey them to their human uh, partners in crime, so to say. Uh, usually the, the so-called fortune, fortune tellers, uh, arraf, uh, or, uh, uh, or soothsayers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, okay, so I, mean, I could completely you know, reconcile that almighty God, his, you know, delegates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go do this for her, go, go bless him. So I don't know, that makes sense. Okay. But um, the focus should be on him in my personal view. But um, is it fair to say from your understanding of jinn, they really can't physically harm human beings, right? Because humans, if, if it's God's will, everything is God's will. Jinn cannot act outside of his will. Yeah, you know, every, every entity is under God, right? But um, is it fair to say that jinn cannot harm a human unless God wills it? Because you know, yeah, yeah, you can say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. in pre-Islamic Arabia, the jinn were often, uh, yeah, engaged in like petty uh, unpleasantness, uh, overturning uh, jars in the tents. But they were like acting like hobgoblins or something like uh, <laughs> local spirits, or uh, souring the uh, the milk in the udder. Of, an, uh, of a cow or, 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 or a she camel. Uh, so this little kind of uh, tricks uh, can be unpleasant, uh, but uh, there were special formulas to protect oneself. And then one turned to religious specialists, those who communicated with the jinn, who claimed to be in contact with the jinn. So, and th they could, uh, for a small fee, they could uh, relieve mm, you from, from the <laughs> machinations of those genies. Yeah. yeah. But Last usually, one. no, yeah, usually you're right. It, they are quite benign, I would say. Right. Uh, last question. I don't want to take up too much of your time, doctor. Um, you know, we hear about people who are possessed, very religious people, like, you know, you have evil spirits possessing somebody, demonic possession, you know, there's exorcism in Christianity, um, I think Judaism too, I could be wrong. Is there a exorcism type of exercise in Islam? Yes, yeah, they, it's usually the reading of uh, select verses from the Quran by a religious specialist, not necessarily a Sufi sheikh, it can be a Sufi, mm -hmm. uh, it can be a scholar, uh, yeah. yes. Also, the, the prophet's pr tradition uh, say, uh, confirm the belief in the evil eye. And um, oh. so that's uh, 
al ain haqiqa one of the hadiths one of the the uh, evil eye is re real uh, that's what the hadith says so people believe in the evil eye and try to ward off its uh deleterious its harmful effects again by using uh usually verses of the quran mainly the verses related to the special powers of Suleiman or Solomon, they, right. uh, yeah, who, who is considered to be uh, uh, the great, if not magician, the, the person who had the powers to control the winds, the jinnis, uh, it, it's mm -hmm. mentioned in the Quran, and all kinds of spirits, and of course, to speak uh, animal tongues, uh, and <laughs> even the, 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 the uh, tongue of the ants. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, the hardest yeah. workers in the, on the planet are ants. So really. they would, yeah, yeah, they would use those verses that related to the special powers of Suleiman um, to ward off the uh, evil eye or the effects of the evil eye, or to protect themselves from uh, uh, un, uh, un, some uh, some bad events. Uh, they were used in talismans, talisman, tilsam mm -hmm. in Arabic, from the Greek word um, and uh, talismans usually were carried on the body uh, or even on the body armor sometimes uh, it was part of the bodily armor you can see them on display in istanbul that special shirts uh, worn by the warriors which included those verses that were supposed to protect uh, the warriors from uh, from weapons mm -hmm. interesting well Dr. Kanish, this has been very helpful. Um, is there anything I missed or you wanted to add about Sufi mysticism, Islamic mysticism at all that I didn't ask? Yeah, I just wanted to say that the entire world of Islam today divided uh, into two camps, pro-Sufi and anti-Sufi. These sentiments can be found across the Muslim world, from Africa, from uh, all the way to China. So this division is quite acute. Um, the critics who, are, who, who can be described, quote unquote, as fundamentalists, they believe that Sufism was not part of the original Islam when the prophet was in charge and when his four uh, successors were in charge, that it was an invention, later invention, and it was an uh, 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 um, uh, evil invention or unwelcome innovation in religion. Uh, they also believe that the Sufi masters, uh, because they compete with one another, they divide the community. Uh, and they, uh, the fundamentalists want a unified Islam to present a unified front against the Western influences, against Western domination. And they believe that Sufis are uh, more or less in bed with the corrupt governments. Uh, in, in their countries who are in turn controlled by the West. So that's uh, the, 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 the situation is across the Muslim world in practically every community. In North America also there are, Sufi, that there are communities that even have special mosques where they would uh, pray uh, and, and uh, separate themselves from those who are pro-Sufis or anti-Sufis. But yes, uh, that's, that's the phenomenon that can be found not only in the Muslim communities in the Muslim world, but also uh, in the West, because uh, Western Islam is part and parcel of uniform, universal Islam. That's my last mm -hmm. comment. Thank you very much for uh, having me.
Thank you, Dr. Kanesh. Now, if listeners want to uh, read your books, where can they find and buy your books? How can they get a Yeah, you can go to Amazon. And there are two books. Uh, one is a general introduction called Islamic Mysticism, A Short History. Um, there's a, an electronic version of that book by published by uh, in Boston and uh, Leiden by Brill. It's an academic publisher. And the new book is called uh, Islamic uh, Sufism, A New History of Islamic Mysticism. It was published in 2017 by the Princeton University Press and Oxford University Press. It's available on Amazon. Just type in my name and you will see all the books. I also have a book on um, dreams and visions in Islamic societies, which uh, features uh, uh, dream lore, if you wish, mm. uh, the discussions of dreams and their significance for human life in Muslim societies. Everyone, that was Dr. Alexander Knish. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone.